All right, welcome back to the Fitz News Studios for another edition of the Week in Review. We've got a lot to cover this week, folks. A major escalation of the Rockstar Cheer scandal, which began in Greenville, South Carolina, but which has spread across the country. We're going to update you on that. We've got an update on Thornblade, another sex scandal in the South Carolina upstate that went quiet a few years back, but it's coming back in a big way. We're going to update you with the latest on that. We've got some Murdoch news for you, as well as some news from the South Carolina political realm. A big abortion debate at the state house, as well as some incredibly controversial comments from a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. We're going to get into all that. But before we started last week, I had a couple of the kids on the show for the intro, and I figured, why not this week? Let's meet the person who is responsible for those rugrats. And how many kids you got, babe? Oh, seven. Well, including eight, including you. Right there, we go. That's the that's the real number, but um. Katrina is my wife, and it's kind of funny because, you know, you got a lot of guys that will will talk with their buds or talk with other people, and they'll say, yeah, i got to ask the boss. i got to ask the boss what she says. And usually it's like this funny, ha-ha, domestic-type thing where, you know, whatever. But in my case, it's kind of true because you kind of run this thing. Kind of, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, please. This woman's oppression from Detroit people. She's running this thing, okay? Which reminds me, if you are interested in advertising on Fitz News, Katrina's who you want to get in touch with. Katrina at Fitz News, we're going to throw it up here. So reach out to her. But that reminds me, we have a huge new sponsorship we're going to announce for the Week in Review uh, coming up here next month. Our good friends at the Bland Richter Law Firm, Eric Bland and Ronnie Richter, they've signed. They're coming on board. And not only that, they're going to be back in the studio where they've created all kinds of mayhem in the past. Just a wonderful group of guys. I love watching them go back and forth. So stay tuned for all that and much more on your Week in Review. All right, so we're going to start again this week with Rockstar Cheer, the scandal that continues to mushroom and expand across the country. It started two weeks ago in Greenville, South Carolina, with the suicide of 49-year-old Scott Foster. Scott Foster was the owner and the founder of Rockstar Cheer. His death as this news outlet exclusively reported at the time, came on the heels of a nascent federal investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct with underage uh, girls and boys who were students at the Rockstar Cheer Gym. Now, if you follow this news outlet, you know that that's not the extent of this story. This story has exploded. It has expanded into a number of different realms, uh, allegations against other leaders in the cheer industry, allegations against other gyms. Uh, Most significantly, however, allegations against the very institutions that have comprised the the basis of the cheer industry in America for, for decades. Most notably, I'm talking about Varsity, which is a massive corporation, uh, multiple subsidiaries, dominates the cheer market, whether it's shoes, uniforms, competition, uh, events, and then of course, Varsity, controls the various oversight agencies, which are responsible for ensuring the integrity of competition, as well as the safety of the athletes that participate in these competitions. Now, those national institutions are squarely under the gun. They are squarely in the crosshairs, particularly the federal lawsuit, which was filed earlier this month in Greenville, South Carolina, by attorneys with the Strom Law Firm. We're going to be talking extensively with those strong attorneys next week. And we're going to get into the details of that lawsuit. But this week, 
we saw a real escalation of the national press coverage on this story. And I want to rewind the tape here a little bit because for, for the first week of this story, it was just Fitz News, right? We were the only ones reporting on it. We were the only ones talking about that federal inquiry. But over the last few weeks, we've seen the state media here in South Carolina uh, get on the case, and they've been doing an excellent job, by the way. I want to commend my colleagues in the mainstream press here in South Carolina for the work they're doing. But now we're seeing it begin to filter into the national press. And there was a huge story. We reported on this yesterday, a huge story in the website Sportico, which is devoted to following the business of the sporting industry. And this news outlet has covered the cheerleading industry uh, in detail over the years. And in fact, one of their reporters, a Daniel Libet, has been covering a big antitrust case involving varsity, which again is the, you know, the 400 pound behemoth of the uh, cheerleading industry. So that story broke a lot of new ground. And I want to say I was just incredibly impressed by, by that coverage as well, because it, it delved into one of the key components of this federal lawsuit. And I'm referring specifically to allegations that, that varsity and its subsidiaries and the ostensible, uh, you know, folks who were in charge of regulating this industry, they were all informed of allegations against Scott Foster and against Rockstar and did nothing, or at the very least, didn't do what they should have done and handed out punishments in name only, suspensions in name only. And this is going to be key to the, the success or failure of this federal lawsuit, folks, because if it can be proven that these institutions, these icons of the cheerleading industry in the United States were made aware of these allegations and failed to take the appropriate action, and that that failure in turn created conditions where there were potentially dozens, if not hundreds of additional victims, survivors here, that could be huge. That could be huge. And so the piece in Sportico was very interesting because it, it went into that and it actually quoted a former employee at Varsity who went on the record saying that, yes, the company was notified of allegations involving Scott Foster back in 2017. That's a huge allegation, folks. And according to our sources, Rockstar Cheer Parents, it is 100% accurate. 100% accurate. I've spoken with two parents of former cheerleaders at Rockstar Cheer who have told me that they reported allegations of a sexual misconduct nature involving Scott Foster to Varsity in 2017. And not only that, these parents have told me that the suspension that this ostensible entity handed down in response to those allegations was a joke. To the direct quote from one of those parents, it was a joke. According to this parent, Scott Foster was still allowed to attend the very events where he, he was using uh, as a predator these, these young adults. So allegations of a sexual nature were presented to Varsity, again, according to the lawsuit and according to the parents we've spoken to, and according to the former Varsity employee who talked with Sportico. That's a, a lot of critical mass, people. That's a lot of people saying the same thing, and yet the only thing Varsity is saying is that, oh, those allegations are unsupported. They're unsupported. And oh, by the way, that person, that's a disgruntled former employee that's making those allegations. And we had no information at the time to suggest that Scott Foster was in any way engaged in any of this kind of behavior. That's their line. That's their line. And in fact, that's one of many. There have been a lot of these kind of CYA statements that have come out from these cheerleading institutions. They're all shocked and horrified by these allegations. You know, and they clutch their pearls about how horrible it is. And, 
you know, devastated to learn, and this is disgusting and abhorrent, and all these, you know, high-dollar Madison Avenue public relation firm words that they throw out. Well, I'm not buying it, <laughs> okay? And I don't think you should buy it either, because what I believe what we are, what we are seeing, based on our initial investigations at Fitz News, and what the attorneys who filed that federal lawsuit are seeing in their investigation, is again a culture of secrecy surrounding these allegations. A culture of covering up some of these awful allegations against these cheerleading industry leaders. And why would they do that? That's the question. Let's ask that question. And I want to give credit to, to Daniel Libet and Sportico because they got into that. Why? Why wouldn't a company want its coaches and want its affiliates to conduct themselves with integrity? Well, Perhaps one of the reasons is that was right before the company was being sold for about $2.5 billion to Bain Capital. Bain Capital bought Varsity for $2.5, some say $2.8 billion. Right around the time these allegations were being made, I wonder, did people not want to mess that sale up? It's a pretty powerful motivation. But here's another motivation, and this was something that was directly raised in that Sportico piece. Scott Foster was a huge customer for varsity. He was making varsity a ton of money. Again, this is all part of this pipeline of athletes and revenue and according to the lawsuit targets for sexual abuse that these cheer gyms were funneling to varsity. It's sick folks. And again, I have no problem with people making money. That's fine. You, you got a good thing going and there are arguments that, you know, Jeff Webb and the varsity people have revolutionized the cheer industry in America and brought it into the mainstream and have it now on the verge of being an Olympic sport. And that's all great. It gives these young people something to aspire to. It gives them a, a, a sense of team, of belonging, of accomplishment. Those are all good things. It's distinctly American. But this seedy side of it, where adults are plying these kids with alcohol, with drugs in some cases. In fact, we've seen videos that would blow your mind of drug use by these young cheerleaders. But they're getting them drunk. They're getting them high. And for what? <laughs> to exploit them sexually. Again, I touched on this as a parent last week. This, this week we're focusing on it from the journalistic side, but it's just, it's shocking. It's shocking. As we continue to expand our coverage, sorry, as we continue to expand our coverage of this, I want to talk about some of the, the work that we're planning. Our director of special projects, Dylan Nolan, our director of research, Jen Wood, we are working collaboratively on a new podcast that's going to launch this week. It's called Cheer Incorporated, and it is going to dive into these very issues. And it's going to get into them in a, in a granular way that Fitz News is sponsoring and that we're going to support with our coverage, including the weekend review shows, including our coverage on the website. But Cheer Incorporated launching this week. And in fact, let's take a look at the, th at the trailer for that podcast. On Monday, August 22nd, 2022, a man by the name of Scott Foster drove his 2023 Kia Sportage with a vanity license plate reading Rockstar to Paris Mountain State Park, just north of Greenville, South Carolina. 
he parked his car and shot himself in the head. Scott Foster was the founder and owner of Rockstar Cheer, a Greenville-based cheer gym franchise he opened with his wife, Kathy Foster, in 2007. Foster had coached all-star cheerleaders for over 20 years. He is renowned in the industry. His company was hugely successful with franchises all across the country. By all appearances, Foster was beloved by his community and the athletes that he trained. In the immediate aftermath of his suicide, though, it became clear that beneath the outpouring of grief and support on social media, in all the requests for prayers and privacy from Rockstar and Foster's family, something was off. My name is Jennifer Wood. I'm a cheer mom. I've coached all-star teams and helped coach high school teams. I'm also an investigative researcher with a degree in criminal justice from Michigan State University. For the last year, I've been the director of research at Fitz News, an independent South Carolina-based media outlet, which has gained national acclaim for its coverage of the Murdoch family murders. I'll be co-hosting this podcast with Fitz News founding editor, Will Folks, the journalist who broke open the Murdoch murder saga and who first reported on the rock star cheer story. Fitz News director of special projects, Dylan Nolan, is our executive producer. In the first season of Cheer Incorporated, our news team will take everything we've learned in the aftermath of Scott Foster's suicide to explore not only the allegations against Rockstar Cheer, but the epidemic of sexual abuse within the cheerleading industry. We will follow the rapidly expanding lawsuits and criminal investigations, letting our listeners hear how those entrusted with protecting our children and putting their safety and best interests first instead use them for sexual gratification and then covered it up to keep the profits flowing. We will look at the impact this factory of abuse has had on the cheer industry, as well as so many child athletes and their families, and explore what needs to be done to fix it moving forward. All right, so that's the sneak preview at Cheer Incorporated, the Fitz News podcast, which is launching this Tuesday. Be on the lookout for that on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcast. Also, keep it tuned to Fitz News for the very latest on the Rockstar Cheer Saga. And once more, I want to remind everybody watching this, if you've been impacted by this story, if you know a victim, if you are a victim, if you know a survivor, or if you are a survivor, please reach out to us. Research at fitznews.com. I'm going to put this email up one more time. That is Jen Wood. She is not only the best researcher in America, she's also a cheer mom who has made it her mission in life to hold this industry accountable. All right, so we're going to go from one sex scandal emanating in the South Carolina upstate to another. Yeah, there must be something in the water up there in that social conservative evangelical upstate. I don't know, man, but it seems like the most dangerous place in South Carolina if you're an underage kid for sexual abuse is the lily white arch conservative South Carolina upstate. Who would have figured? But anyway, we're talking now about Thornblade. And if you're a regular member of our audience, you know that name. You know this story. Thornblade is a upscale, very ritzy neighborhood near Greer, South Carolina, which is a suburb of Greenville. It's uh, very white, very uh, affluent. Uh, it's host of a annual golf tournament at the golf club there. Very popular, prominent destination for the, the wealthy elite of Greenville, South Carolina. But it was also the focus of a Homeland Security investigation back in 2020 based on allegations that a group of men who lived in this neighborhood were sexually exploiting underage high school students. And the story blew up in the 
spring of 2020, but then basically disappeared. And according to my sources, the gist of the investigation was that all that prosecutors could prove was consensual sex, meaning that there were people who were above the age of 16, the age of consent in South Carolina, which means that they're technically not committing a crime. And they just felt that there wasn't enough to go on. And I've spoken with federal prosecutors and I've spoken with state level prosecutors about that. And they both basically told me they came to that same conclusion. So Thornblade kind of vanished. But within the last few weeks, and again, maybe it's tied to Rockstar cheer, maybe it's not, I don't know. But within the last few weeks, we have seen a steady escalation of incoming information related to Thornblade. People who have additional names, who have additional information, who even some claim to have been victims in this case of sexual abuse. And so as we've been exploring this saga and diving into this, uh, again, renewed flood of information coming in related to it, one of the things that we found that was very interesting was a component of this story that I wrote about back in 2020, and it involved an internal affairs investigation that was conducted by the Greenville County Sheriff's Office. This investigation involved a deputy who was alleged to have received information related to the Thornblade scandal, particularly uh, illicit video clips, perhaps involving some underage sexual activity. But anyway, this deputy was provided with this information, and according to the complaint which was sent to the Greenville Sheriff's Office, failed to act on it. Now, who referred the deputy? Was it a citizen? Was it a alleged victim? No. It was actually the Homeland Security investigators. And we know this now because this week, at long last, Greenville County finally answered a Freedom of Information Act request, which was filed by this news outlet, by Jen Wood, our researcher. And it was Revealing and yet at the same time not revealing. Let's talk about what it revealed first. First and foremost, this FOIA documented that everything Fitz News reported on back in 2020 was absolutely accurate. There was, in fact, this sprawling federal investigation into these allegations. It also affirmed the fact that these allegations were made. Now, it didn't prove them necessarily, but everything that this news outlet reported back in 2020 on Thornblade, this internal affairs file showed we were absolutely chasing exactly what the feds were chasing. The same allegations, the same individuals, the same Thornblade neighborhood. But here's the funny thing. As I've previously reported, part of the Homeland Security investigation involved a dossier, a three-page document, which detailed specifically the names of those involved, what their roles were in this alleged sex ring, and beyond that, some of the alleged victims in this case. So obviously we would never release the names of victims, but I thought it was interesting when we received our FOIA back from Greenville County on this internal affairs investigation, we knew it had the dossier in it. We knew that that information was provided to Greenville County as part of their investigation of this deputy. But guess what? Every single page of that dossier, which I believe is one of the most sensitive documents ever, ever to hit the Greenville County area and Greenville, greater Greenville area. Where is it? Let's take, and I'm going to show this on the screen here. If you're watching on our, our YouTube page, you, you're going to see this. It's every page of it completely blacked out. 
And again, this document was heavily redacted, and I get that. We don't want to put uh, underage victims in a bad spot. We don't want to put people who blew the whistle on some of this activity in a bad spot because those, those are the people you got people courageous enough to stand up and challenge these powerful individuals. And then you've got the victims. And certainly you don't want to put them in a spot where they're going to face uh, recrimination and potential, uh, potentially even danger for stepping forward. But this section here where the entire three pages, the entire thing's completely blocked out. Folks, this isn't a CIA file. These aren't nuclear codes. This isn't the coordinates for the alien spacecraft at Area 51. This is this is legitimate public information that people have a right to know, particularly if you've got teenage kids in the South Carolina upstate. Now, as we dig into this, we've heard stories from Thornboy people. The, the narrative that we've heard is very troubling. There's a group of men. They called themselves the Twelve Disciples. The Twelve Disciples. How about that? And it was a club created for the purpose of sexual gratification. Again, kind of like this Rockstar Cheers saga we're, studying, we're following. But the disciples were named and listed in that dossier, folks. And we've got it. We've got the unredacted dossier, and we are in the process of diving down every single one of those rabbit holes because there are some names in there that would blow your mind, folks, including names of people who are tied to some folks pretty high up in the federal government. That's right. That's right. And I'm going to tell you right now, the rock starts your story, dominating the headlines right now, dominating the discussion in the upstate and across South Carolina, across the country now, in fact. But if you think we're, for a second we're going to snooze on Thornblade, think again, folks, because we're, we're diving into this story. And again, a lot of folks have, have suggested there may be a connection between these two, because obviously they're same geographic area, the same kind of allegations. I have not seen anything yet that would indicate that these stories are connected, certainly not at a you know, substantive level. Perhaps there's some similar names. But it's clear that there's an epidemic of underage sexual exploitation emanating from Greenville, South Carolina. And it is significant in both cases, people. Rockstar and Thornblade. And if you care about your kids, and if you care about the safety of those kids from these local high schools up in Greenville, keep it tuned to Fist News because I'll tell you what right now, we're going to hold every one of those people accountable. Every single one of them. And if we get the evidence and the documentation to blow the disciples out of the water, mark my words, we will. All right, so a quieter week than we're accustomed to on the Murdoch murders, crime, and corruption front. This case has generated a ton of news in the last couple months, but over the last week, things have gone a bit quiet. Now, there have been some updates on the civil side of this drama, particularly the wrongful death case involving 19-year-old Mallory Beach, her family filing a lawsuit uh, back in 2019 against the Murdochs and a, a group of corporate defendants. That case is moving forward. However, it's not moving forward as fast as we originally thought. Now, if you've been following this story, this case stems from a 2019 boat crash in which Paul Murdoch was allegedly driving a 17-foot center console fishing boat owned by his father, Alec Murdoch, rammed it into a piling on the Archer's Creek Bridge down in Beaufort County, South Carolina, flung Mallory Beach's body into the water. She was found dead a week later by local fishermen. Now, 
This case is what thrust the Murdochs on the statewide stage here in South Carolina. And it is the moment in this story when this family finally had the light shone on them for the first time, really. All of a sudden, all the stunts they've been pulling, the, the, the veil dropped, folks. Everyone started to see exactly what was happening with this powerful family and its, its network of allies down there in the South Carolina Low Country. But more directly for our purposes, it sparked a wrongful death case, one which continues to this day. And as I mentioned, that case has multiple defendants, including members of the Murdoch family and some of the corporate defendants whose alleged negligence uh, uh, contributed to this crash. So as this case has unfolded, it's created this dynamic that's just unprecedented in my experience in covering a legal case. Because one group of defendants, uh, Greg Parker, who is the Savannah-based owner of the Parker's Convenience Store chain, he's one of the defendants because Paul Murdoch bought alcohol at one of his stores prior to the crash using a fake ID belonging to, to his brother Buster Murdoch. And so they are negligent according to the law and according to the uh, wrongful death lawsuit filed by the Beach family. So Parker's has engaged in what can only be classified as a jihad against the Murdoch family. And again, they're a pretty easy family to fit for a black hat, folks. I mean, based on, on the rampant corruption down in the low country and the network of financial crimes that's been uncovered over the last year as the investigation of the Murdoch family has continued. But fitting the Murdochs for a black hat has not been hard. But Parker in the process, just a vitriolic campaign. And in fact, it's gotten so bad that he and his minions, who are allegedly behind this, uh, this attack campaign, they've actually been the focus of a second lawsuit tied to that wrongful death case. And I'm referring, of course, to this conspiracy case which alleges that they leaked confidential information from the, the boat crash case to the media in an effort to uh, go after the Beach family and weaken their resolve, and at the same time also portray the Murdochs in an even more negative light, which again, I don't know exactly how you do that. That's not really a hard job. But again, these two defendants up until this month were one in this case. It was one case, and Mark Tinsley, the attorney for the Beach family, was going to try everyone who he believes were responsible for the accident. But this month, South Carolina Circuit Court Judge Daniel Hall issued a ruling severing the defendants in this case. Now, this is a big deal because it means that no longer is there one case. We now got two lawsuits, one against the Parker's defendants and one against the Murdoch's. So as this case moves forward, how does this severing of defendants work? Well, Originally, Hall scheduled the first trial against the Parker's defendants to move forward next month in October. Pretty quick turnaround. And in fact, Mark Tinsley, the attorney for the Beach family, told me he was ready to try the case. In fact, he said he was ready to try it immediately. But Tinsley is concerned, and I think he's got a good reason to be concerned, because his argument is that splitting this case could potentially absolve the Murdochs of any culpability for this accident. He wants to try the whole thing at the same time, and he got an opening in his effort to do that this week when Judge Hall decided that, no, this, this civil case is not going to be tried in October, as he originally said. Instead, it's getting bumped to January. January 2023. Now, why is that important? It's important because that's the exact time that Alec Murdoch, who is now accused of killing Paul Murdoch, the driver of the boat, his son, and Maggie Murdoch, his wife and Paul's mother. 
That's exactly the time that his murder trial is scheduled to start. So, according to Tinsley, a motion is going to be filed asking Judge Hall to reconsider that decision to split these defendants, to bring them back together in one case, in one case, so that he can argue the culpability of everyone involved. Everyone involved. And again, these are cases that have a lot of different layers, folks, because you got to find out not only what happened in the crash, but you got to figure out, okay, let's rewind the clock from that moment. When did they get inebriated? Who bought the booze? You know, all these things come into negligence, come into who is ultimately responsible. And the sad thing, from my perspective anyway, because I, I live in South Carolina, I believe that the state is lacking on so many fronts economically. And one of the fronts where we're lacking is we're just not a very business-friendly state. we got a lot of liability laws that hold us back, quite frankly, that keep us from being competitive. And I believe that Greg Parker has a point when it comes to those liability laws. The guy has a point. We do need to look at our competitive climate in South Carolina and decide whether or not we are properly apportioning blame in cases just like this. But the problem is that every time I get on the keyboard and think about writing a column about how Greg Parker has a point, he goes and pulls some outrageous political stunt in an effort to continue strong-arming this case, or he and his minions continue these backdoor secret games and leaking information and, and dropping pictures of a, a poor girl's dead body to, to so-called documentary filmmakers. How do you... How do you argue for a guy like that? It's very difficult because he's he's technically right on the issue, or at least he's right that the issue needs to be considered. But the guy's just such a complete asshole. I'm sorry. I, I know I shouldn't probably say that, but the guy's just, he's a jerk. And every time you want to go and, and go to bat and make the argument, he goes and pulls some stunt like this. And one of his latest stunts literally goes out and hires the governor's son to be one of his lawyers. That's right. And this is after he is hired the Speaker of the House of Representatives as another one of his lawyers. It's a power play, people. It's a power play. And it completely undermines what would otherwise be a credible argument. Anyway, we're going to get into all the details on that civil court case. You can read them on Fitz News. It's not quite as sexy as the murder trial, but it matters. It matters. And it not only matters to justice against the Murdochs and justice for the family of Mallory Beach, but it matters in that bigger sense about South Carolina's competitiveness as a state. So Count Fitz News to keep you up to speed on the very latest, not only on the Murdoch murders criminal trial, but also on the latest developments in the civil case. Right, so we're going to turn now to some political news in South Carolina. We covered this earlier this week. U.S. Senate candidate Crystal Matthews, a state representative in the South Carolina House, she made some interesting comments on a surreptitiously recorded uh, video about white people. And let's take a listen. Crystal Matthews, right? Dem Democratic uh, Senate uh, candidate? Hey, Crystal yeah. Matthews, you uh, said that yeah. you uh, want to put white people yeah, under your yeah. thumb, Crystal? Yeah. I, I keep them right here like, under my thumb. Like, yeah. That's where I keep them. Like, yeah. You have to. Yeah. Otherwise, they get out of control like his. Okay, so we reported this earlier this week. And again, I just, what are you thinking? What are you thinking, Crystal Matthews? I mean, come on. So, Here's the interesting thing that happened here, because this never happens, okay? If a, a white person says something like that, mass cancellation, and probably appropriately so, but there's a double standard in this country, right? So when someone like Crystal Matthews says something like that, targeting the white folk, hall pass, right? Hall, hall pass, but not 
this time. And I want to single somebody out. He's one of our advertisers. He's one of my friends. But he made some news this week in a very courageous way. And I'm talking about Justin Bamberg. Justin, a state representative. He's one of Crystal Matthews' colleagues in the South Carolina House. Justin's a guy we don't always agree on everything. He's a Democrat, hardcore liberal. But the guy is an honest broker. He calls it straight. This way, that way, anyway. In fact, he doesn't know any other way to do it than to tell it like it is. And I respect that and I admire that. And this week, Justin Bamberg, in a column published exclusively on Fitz News, came out and not only called for Crystal Matthews to suspend her campaign for the United States Senate, but called on her to resign from the South Carolina House of Representatives. And again, much credit to Justin Bamberg. But again, here's I don't want Crystal Matthews to resign because she's racist. I mean, she, clearly she's racist. But I don't think that's the reason she should resign. I think she should resign because she's stupid. Who in the world, seriously, our director of special projects, Dylan Nolan, pointed this, who in the world lets themselves get surreptitiously recorded, not once, but twice? I mean, this is a candidate who has already been exposed nationally for basically saying that she wanted drug dealers to fund her U.S. Senate candidacy. And that surreptitious recording got leaked and, and blasted all over the Internet and embarrassed her. Who lets themselves get it recorded like that again? Who talks to someone they don't know that well? Because seriously, if someone's recording you privately, surreptitiously, chances are you don't know them as well as you think you do. But either way, who lets themselves fall into that trap twice? Now, wait a minute, though. Uh-oh. It might be me. Because I'm now recalling that Dylan Nolan, who's filming the show and producing this advert, has quite a blackmail folder on me for some dumb stuff that I've said. In fact, we did a documentary just this past week we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, I say a lot of dumb stuff, but I don't say it to people I don't know and don't trust. And I sure as hell don't say it in a way like Crystal Matthews does, targeting an entire race of people. Entire race of people. So anyway... Big news in the U.S. Senate race, but again, it's not that big news because here's the thing. Crystal Matthews was never a viable candidate for the U.S. Senate anyway. South Carolina is Republican-controlled. This race was never going to be competitive. And oh, by the way, I think it's worth pointing out, the Republican candidate that Crystal Matthews is running against is black, U.S. Senator Tim Scott. So again, save the racism for somewhere else, Crystal Matthews, and I don't think you're helping your campaign one bit with that. All right, so it was a big week in South Carolina on the abortion front, but was it? We know lawmakers were convened in Columbia, South Carolina this week to address this issue. They took literally two weeks to address this issue. Taxpayer money, funding them coming back to Columbia to talk about just this issue. So what'd they do? Nothing. Nothing. If you are pro-life, if you are pro-choice... If you're in the middle, you just got jerked around this week, completely jerked around. Let me walk you through what happened. If you follow this debate, you know that a year ago, South Carolina passed a piece of legislation called the heartbeat bill. That bill made abortion illegal after a fetal heartbeat is detected, but it included exemptions for rape and it included exemptions for incest. Now, this was invalidated, obviously, the moment it was passed by a U.S. District Court judge who ruled that it violated the right to abortion ensconced in the Roe versus Wade decision. But earlier this year, the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade, which meant the heartbeat bill was all of a sudden the law of the state. 
Lawmakers weren't happy with that, though. Republicans in the South Carolina General Assembly wanted to take it further. They wanted to implement a total ban on abortion from conception, and many of them wanted to strike away those rape and incest exemptions. So they did that in the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives passed a total abortion ban. Their Judiciary Committee pushed this bill out. And again, a lot of folks are wondering, wait a minute, you've got a pretty restrictive abortion bill. What what are you doing? And in fact, there's polling that was released on the on the eve of that debate, which showed that even most Republicans in South Carolina kind of wanted things to stay where they were with, with that heartbeat bill. But again, try telling Republicans in, in Columbia, South Carolina to you know, follow what the people want. Yeah, doesn't always happen that way. But this debate kind of went off the rails, kind of went off the rails. And so you ended up with this total ban from conception, no exemptions. You had social conservatives pushing that. And then you actually ended up having Democrats kind of jumping on with it just because they wanted to see this thing kind of blow up in the Republicans' face, which that makes sense. That's pretty smart politics, right? If you got a bill that's unpopular on the abortion issue, why not help push your opponent off the cliff if that's the way they're going with it. But the bill ended up in the Senate where after extensive debate and after an impassioned filibuster by State Senator Tom Davis, we ended up exactly where we started. Not exactly. There are a few minor caveats to the bill that cleared the Senate this week that make it a little bit different from the heartbeat bill. There are some very technical provisions which are different. But all in all, it's basically the same bill. So I don't understand it. I don't get it. This debate got so personal. If you follow our news outlet over the last month, you saw just how personal it got with people uh, trying to out women who'd had abortion who are married to lawmakers who supported this or uh, people going online saying, hey, tell us uh, lawmakers who are voting for this who are having affairs. It just got incredibly personal. Um, We covered that. We didn't get into some of that gutter gossip that some of the other people were getting into, but we did cover how personal it had gotten. But what I'm proud of our news for is we have consistently hosted a highbrow discussion on this issue, both from the pro-life side and from the pro-choice side. We had a column on the pro-life side from Holly Gatling, who's the executive director of South Carolina Citizens for Life. She laid out a very personal way her involvement in this issue. And then Amanda Cunningham, our guest columnist, laid out from the pro-choice side, her thoughts on it. In fact, Amanda reached out to me recently. She was talking about how things went down in the Senate with the debate on abortion. In fact, I wanted to read her quote here. She just sent me a quote on it. It's an utter disappointment to watch our state legislature waste months of our time and money debating a bill that ultimately made last year's cardiac activity bill more restrictive. And I quote, she said, it's deflecting from real issues our state faces, but it's not all for nothing. We saw Republicans and pro-lifers cross party lines to protect and stand in solidarity with women. It's separating the extreme from the rational, Cunningham continued. This bill says sometimes we trust women and doctors, but most times the legislature knows best. Our lawmakers' antics will send hordes of women and their allies to the polls this November. Interesting. Now, is that accurate? Is that accurate? And you know what else is interesting? If that happens, guess who would benefit? It'd be actually Cunningham's ex, former U.S. Congressman Joe Cunningham, who's running for governor of South Carolina. So that's an interesting take there. But this issue really did end up, I know I know Amanda had a point there about how the, the Senate law made the abortion regulations more restrictive. 
Very minor, folks. Very minor. The bill that cleared the Senate is essentially the same as the heartbeat bill, which, again, makes me wonder, why did we spend all this time, all this money, all this energy on a debate that literally got us right back to where we are, right back to where we were? Now, what's the status of the heartbeat bill? For those of you who've been following it in the court system, this news outlet's been covering that issue extensively. The heartbeat bill is currently before the South Carolina Supreme Court, which is entertaining a challenge from Planned Parenthood as to whether or not it is constitutional under the South Carolina Constitution. Again, U.S. Supreme Court has already ruled Roe v. Wade. uh, It struck that down. But this challenge from Planned Parenthood goes to the state constitution of whether or not there's a privacy provision in there that would allow abortion. The Supreme Court has not ruled on that. They have, however, issued a temporary injunction blocking the enforcement of the heartbeat bill until they reach a decision. So all of a sudden that state Supreme Court decision is now huge, huge, because it will determine whether or not the heartbeat bill that was passed by the legislature or this heartbeat bill two that came out of the state Senate this week that decision will determine whether or not those laws stand. Count on Fitz News to keep you up to speed not only on the latest legislative debate on abortion in South Carolina, the latest court debate on abortion, but also count on us to continue to follow this back-and-forth personal debate as it continues to surround this issue. Well, that's a wrap for this week's editions of the Week in Review. Once again, Cheer Incorporated, a new Fitz News podcast launching this Tuesday. Check it out on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It is going to be a deep dive into the Rockstar Cheer story, which has, again, exploded on the national stage over the last few weeks. And I want to thank Jen Wood and our director of special projects, Dylan Nolan. They're going to be co-producers on that show. It's going to dive deep into this scandal and give you a perspective that you can't get anywhere else. Also, wanted to point out one other thing that we've been working on here at Fitz News. Again, all these high-profile, big headline stories, but we can't forget the corruption every day in South Carolina, a state that continues to play host to politicians that take advantage of the taxpayers, take advantage of the citizens to pad their pockets. We've got a story out, out of Berkeley County, South Carolina, focusing on that. And in fact, this story is even worse because it involves somebody that came into office promising to fix corruption, promising to take control of finances that had been misused and misappropriated by a previous group of political leaders. Turns out that guy was just as bad as the people he replaced. We're going to tell you that story out of Berkeley County, South Carolina. So be on the lookout for that. Once again, I want to thank everybody for tuning into the Week in Review, for tuning into Fitz News, and for helping us hold those in power accountable.